chapter 6. On June 1st, 1973, as the Watergate scandal was exploding in the, uh, the newspaper press all around the country, Charles Colson, who many of you probably know was Richard Nixon's uh, chief of staff, and who was caught up in the midst of all this scandal, he went and he visited a friend. His friend's name was Tom Phillips. And as he met with Tom and as he began to discuss what was going on in Tom's life, he was confused and shocked as Tom began to explain to him how he had come to a saving knowledge of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as Colson listened to this story, he began to notice and he saw in Tom the peace that wasn't present in his own life. And when Colson left Tom's house, he was so shaken by what he heard and what he saw and the change and the transformation that happened in his friend that he stumbled at getting the keys into the ignition because he began to cry so hard. Colson writes in his book, Loving God, he writes this, and I quote, That night I was confronted with my own sin. Not just Watergate's dirty tricks, but the sin deep within me. The hidden evil that lives in every human heart. It was painful and I I could not escape. I cried out to God and found myself drawn irresistibly into His waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? Maybe your story isn't exactly the same, but maybe you too have a story of when you came to realize your need for a Savior. You were confronted with your own sinfulness, but yet at the same time you heard the precious news of God's saving grace. And you were humbled and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Great stories. But I'm afraid that sometimes that that same great story can sometimes be a problem for people because that's what people settle for. What I mean is they come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. They come to see their need for a Savior, but they stop there with that story alone. And they fail to see that not only is Jesus Savior, But He's also Lord. That He's God. And that ought to change your life. That ought to take you beyond from just being a sinner who has been saved, but ought to take us to a deeper appreciation for who Christ is. And we ought to come to know Him in deeper and more transformative ways than just to know Him as Savior. Now, I knew this story about Colson, but I didn't know this until a fellow preacher brought it to my attention. But Charles Colson, by the grace of God, did not fall into the trap of just having Jesus as Savior, but he also made Him Lord. 
Not only was he willing to repent and trust in Christ as Savior in 1973, but as the story is told, he also repented several years later of a woeful, inadequate view of God and who God is. It is said that during a period of unusual spiritual dryness, and isn't it in those times of dryness and spiritual wilderness that God gets our attention? It does me. It was in one of these times that a friend suggested to Colson that he watch a video cassette lecture series. You know how old this is. A video cassette lecture series by R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. Again, here's what Colson writes in his book, Loving God. He says, All I knew about Sproul was that he was a theologian, so I wasn't enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers, far from the battlefield of human need. However, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Sproul's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in all of God's absolute holiness. It was a life-changing experience, and as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God, I believe in and worship. And he said, my spiritual drought ended, but, his taste, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of Him. My question for you this morning, and for myself, is do you thirst? I mean, do you thirst for the majesty of God? Have you come to a place in your life where, yes, you know Christ is your Savior, but as you've grown and as you've deepened in that walk with Christ, that you've been confronted with the revelation of who God really is? That He's not just merely our Savior and our friend, but He's God. And He's holy. He's utterly distinct. Like no one and nothing that you know. And at the thought of that, at the reality and the revelation of that, it ought to transform us. And change us. We ought not be the same people. We read of such a story in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah was a man who was transformed by the revelation of God, by the holiness of God. And his humility in the face of this would lead this man to transformation and new devotion to God. Let me read this passage to you. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out 
while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. That, folks, is a story of how God's revelation when received with humility, leads to transformation. Now let's dig into this text together. And I want to spend a time, several minutes here, digging in, particularly in this verse 1. And I want us to look at the revelation of God. What does Isaiah see? What does God show of Himself to Isaiah that changes him? And I've titled this passage before, but... Only as I dug in, as I looked at some resources and heard some of my other brothers preach, has my attention drawn more and more to some of the finer points of this initial verse. The first thing I want us to see is that our God is eternal. Look at what the text says. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. You're wondering, what's the big deal about that? We've got to know something about King Uzziah. King Uzziah was the king over Judah, the southern kingdom of the divided monarchy. And King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. 52 years. Think about that. Some of you have lived for over 52 years. You have been through the presidencies of Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. 52 years. And so you can imagine that this king, Uzziah, who for the most part was a righteous king, although he had some issues with pride later in his life, he had led a stable government, a, a successful government. And here he is, he dies. And there was certainly a great feeling of loss in the land of a man who had reigned for so long. So questions certainly would have arisen. Questions such as, who would lead them next? Who would provide for us like Uzziah provided for us? What about the growing threat of the Assyrians who had already began to make their way down? Who would protect us from invasion or for the God-fearing Jews? As you might know, the book of Isaiah, is, it's, it's filled with hope, but yet it's also filled with great judgment because of a morally depraved people. So the people, the God-fearing Jews, had to be wondering, who's going to help preserve us? Even though Uzziah wasn't perfect, for the most part, he was a righteous king. And it's in the midst of these questions that perhaps even Isaiah had that God says, and or God provides this vision of Himself in the death of King Uzziah. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne. 
That's important, folks. Kingdoms and kings will come. Matter of fact, after Judah would finally go down, the Babylonian kingdom would come. Then the Persian kingdom would come. Then the the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then after that, several other kingdoms. And we have seen kingdoms come and go. But through it all, God is eternal. He's sitting on His throne. And we should take comfort in that. Some of the greatest advice that has ever been given to me about pastoring is this comment. When I was a little too worried about my own leadership and leading the church, it was good to hear. It says, Matt, Christ's church is going to go on whether you're helping to lead it or not. Good advice, isn't it? And God is eternal and He lives no matter what king comes and goes. Amen? Notice this too. God is in control. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, I've always just kind of breezed right over that. Not giving him much thought. But look, what is the Lord doing? He's sitting, isn't He? He's, he's not running around the throne room shocked that Uzziah died, is He? You can laugh. He, he, he's not worrying about what is He going to do next to get the, the Israelites by. He's not calling in a cabinet, polling his advisors to say, hey, what should I do? I'm at a loss here. This, this whole death of Uzziah thing, after 52 years, has thrown me off. He, he, he's sitting on the throne. That's all I want you to know. God is in control. God is in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing will ever thwart his eternal plans. Nothing and no one. God is in control. But third, look at this. And I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. Now this term for Lord is the term Adonai. It's not the personal name of God. It's it's a title. It's a title for God. He is Lord. And He is lofty and exalted. This title for, for Lord here means master or the the sovereign and in conjunction with him being lofty and exalted that his his throne is lofty it is exalted above all else in essence what isaiah is saying is say my, my earthly king has died but i saw the supreme and sovereign king the king over all kings i saw him sitting on a throne lofty and exalted God is sovereign. He's the King of kings. He's over all kings. And here's the point for us. God alone is sovereign and in the absolute final authority in all of life and all matters of life. And guess what? No one ever gave Him the authority. He's always had it. He didn't consult with you and I. He has always been in authority. And He is in charge. Get, get this. Get, this is something I still have to come to grasp with. He is in charge whether I like it or not. 
My, my kids hate that. They hate when I tell them something. Well, why? Because I'm your dad. That's why. He's in charge because he's God. doesn't have to make any excuses for it. He is sovereign. And here's the question for us. We can either humble ourselves willingly under His authority, or we can try by our own pride to thwart it. But He's still in charge. My question for you and for myself is, are you willingly putting His throne at the center of your life, or are you fighting it? Fourth, we see this, and this is, he says, I, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. And as I came to this, I, I wasn't sure, really sure what to make of this, but as I studied the word that, that, as I ponder on this, the word that came to me is that God is immense. Get that. It, it, literally, this is probably best translated the hem of his robe is filling the temple. That is, Isaiah, as he looks upon, as he sees God here, he doesn't even get past the hem of God's robe. Catch that? Because God's robe, God is so immense and so vast that His very hem is filling the temple. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm saying in my head, all right, Isaiah, you, you described to me the, the hem of His robe, but, but tell me more. Tell, tell me more about this robe. You know, go from the, the hem all the way up to the, to the shoulders and, and tell me where this robe is from. Is it from Ralph Lauren or, or Joseph A. Bank? Where is this robe from? But he doesn't do that because he doesn't even get past the hem. Because God is immense. As I, as I thought upon this, I, I asked, well, why doesn't he only get this far in the description? And I'm purely speculating. But perhaps that's as far as Isaiah could get. He couldn't handle anymore. That's too much. From, front, from time to time, you might hear someone offhandedly say, what are we going to do in heaven? Is heaven going to be boring? No. If Isaiah couldn't even get past his hymn, we're going to bask in the character and the essence of God. We will seek for eternity to try to get past the hem of God's robe. When we are in His manifest presence, as I look at Scripture, I look into a Scripture in Ephesians where Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. And he prays this. He's praying that they will be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and so to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And as I thought about that, here is Paul praying that you'll just be able to begin to understand the, the comprehension of God's love for you. I thought about this. I thought, what about the day when you and I, when we pass from this earth, and we make our way to heaven, and we begin to see God's glory manifested more than we have ever seen in all our life, and we see His utter holiness and His distinctiveness and His transcendence, and we see that, and all of a sudden we look back to ourselves and say, 
I'm here. What am I doing here? And the thing that's going to come to our mind is that we're going to begin to grasp just a little bit more of what God's love, that God said, for God so loved the world that I sent my only begotten Son. We'll begin to grasp that a little bit more. Amen? Now the text goes on. Now look at this scene. This, this, is, this is awesome. In, in, in verses 2 through 4, you know, you got to put yourself, try to put yourself in this revelation that you're seeing here. Seraphim stood above him, that is God, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And then he called out to one to another, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is, whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Seraphim literally means burning ones or fire ones. This is appropriate when it's associated with the holiness of God. But as I, as I was thinking about this and as someone pointed out to me, when we, we think of angelic beings, we ought to not think about chubby fat babies. Or worse yet, those precious moment things. I've been to that place. I've, I'm going to offend somebody here. I, I've been to that place, and they have this one building with all these precious moment angels kind of on there, and their big eyes scare me. And, and they, got, they have this mascot with this big precious moment head. That's not what we ought to think of, okay? That's not it. Matter of fact, as someone suggested to me, what we ought to think of is, is the blue angels. Because notice, when, when this seraphim, when he, when he spoke these words of holy, holy is the Lord, look what happens to the foundations of the threshold. Look at it. They, they trembled. It's as if, uh, like, I've been on those jets. I've never seen the blue angels, but I've, I've been on those jets, and you can hear them roaring. And as it's taking off, it's shaking. Or if you've ever heard a, a jet break the sound barrier, that's the kind of image we ought to have, just... Sound that trembled. That's what we ought to feel when we think of God. Because that's what's happening. Even now. Out around the throne room of God. They're crying out, holy, holy. I don't know what these six wings are for. I think everybody, every commentator I read speculates. Perhaps, perhaps it is because of the, the glory of God that they can't even handle it themselves. So their eyes are covered. Their feet are covered. And they use the other two wings to hover around. I don't know, but it's grand. It's powerful. And that's how we ought to worship God. We ought to be moved to praise God. God is so powerful that He has people attending Him for all eternity in worship. And God calls us that we might worship Him with our lives. In Romans 12.1. You say, why? Because God is holy. Look at the verse 3 again. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is the crux of Isaiah's vision. There's great implication in this threefold use of the word holy. 
You and I are used to devices that, uh, such as underlining a word or highlighting or, or quotations or italicizing or exclamation points to highlight something. But in the Hebrew literature, they use repetition. And typically it was something like, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly. But here, they raise it up to the superlative degree, and he says, holy. And he's not just holy, but he's holy, 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 three times to the superlative degree. Nowhere else in the Scripture does God speak of his, or is God's character spoken of. No longer do we hear love, 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 or mercy, 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 or forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. But here we hear holy, 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 and that's for a reason. It's important. He wants us to try to grasp it. So what does it mean for God to be holy? Let me just be straight up honest with you right now. I can't really comprehend it. I'm going to try to explain it to you. But I don't think we can really define it. It's beyond us. Nothing ever does it justice. Now, our first instinct, and my first instinct is when I try to define holiness, is I immediately think of purity. I think of purity. Now, while God is certainly pure, and that purity is certainly, uh, He is without sin, and holiness certainly includes purity from evil, if we settle just for that, we're missing the understanding of God's holiness. It's a part of it, but it's not it. The Hebrew word for holy means marked off, distinct, unique, set apart, or withdrawn from the common or ordinary. If you go through the Bible, the Bible speaks of holy ground. He speaks of holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, holy nation, holy garments, holy city, holy promises, holy men, holy women, holy scriptures, holy hands, holy kiss, and a holy faith and others. But these things were common and then set apart to be devoted to God. It's easier for us to understand holiness in that sense. But when we try to define God as holy, we've got to remember that God has never been set apart from anything. He's always, he's never been a part, he's never been in evil or part of evil to be a set apart from it. He's always been separate. He's always been distinct. He's always been transcendent. He's always been a set apart to himself. In essence, when we speak of God's holiness, it's to speak of God's very divine essence. His very being. That he is incomparable. That he is transcendent. That he has always been apart. Always been distinct. That is, there is no one is like God. There is no one and nothing like Him. He is holy. This is why we are not to fashion any kind of image in His likeness. Isaiah couldn't even get past the hem of his robe, so why in the world would we ever attempt to try to fashion something in the likeness of God? We couldn't do it. So don't ever try to put God in your own fashion, in your own little box, because you can't do it. He transcends that because He's holy. 
This is why we are not to use the name of the Lord our God in vain. His name is not to be used as just some common throwaway word while I'm speaking to others or while I'm texting. He's holy. Don't use his name that way. Don't use his name in a common way. Use it in a holy way because he is holy. The text goes on to say, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This term in Hebrew for glory is kavod. and basically means weight or being heavy. It's, it's, it speaks of it when something's heavy, you can feel it. So when we speak of glory, it's as if we can see or feel the reality of, of, of what it's representing. One way I heard I had it put is that when God says His glory, in essence, it's His holiness revealed. When He speaks of His glory, we're seeing His utter transcendence come into reality where we can begin to at least comprehend it. And the reality is, as these angels speak, they say, the, the earth is full of His glory. And if you take time and you take back from yourself a little bit of your own selfishness and you begin to look around at the earth, you'll begin to see that the earth is bursting forth with the glory of God. You know that every year new discoveries are being made by us of God's creative hand. New discoveries about our bodies. These things have existed, but only now are we beginning to experience and to see them. And that's a testament of God's glory. I remember one time when I was traveling in the Philippines, and I got a glimpse of this glorious handiwork, and some of you all have had the same experience, I'm sure. When I was traveling, we got off on one of the Filipino islands, and it was just dark. And I remember being out on a jeepney, and we sat on top, and we're, we're staring up into the stars, and we got away from all the, the light pollution. And I looked back and I began seeing the stars like I had never seen before. And what it began to spur in me and my other brothers in Christ was that the majesty and the glory of God. That He had set all these brilliant lights up in the sky. And it reminded me of how awesome and how transcendent He was. God's glory is is all around us. Perhaps what we need to do is we need to dim the competing lights that pollute our lives and we need to roll them back so we might, might fully see the glory of God around us. Not only does He show or does He fill the earth through the things that He's created, but He also does it with the lives that He changes and transforms. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5, you've got you to put yourself with this, what, what Isaiah is seeing. Because in verse 5, look what he says. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. This is language of judgment. If you just go to the chapter preceding this, uh, Isaiah had said these words, woe is me, over and over several times. As he was speaking of the judgment that would come on the people of Judah. 
and others. And here he is, what he's doing after he gets this vision of who God is and this revelation of who he is, he begins to call on judgment on himself. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the minute that we compare ourselves or we get a vision of for who God is and His full revelation... Then we begin to see how woeful we are. How far off we are. How far we fall short of the glory of God. Notice here, though, he speaks and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's, he's imagining, knowing that he's being called perhaps to, to prophesy. And he's saying, I'm a man of unclean lips who, who have to minister among a, a, a people of unclean lips. He's like, I'm not any different than these people you're calling me to, to, bring, to speak judgment to. That's right. He's not. And some people are well, now, Isaiah, you're, you're probably one of the most righteous men in this, in this land. And then he says this, For my eyes have seen the King, the King, the Lord, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh, I am, the self-existent one, the Lord of hosts. I'm unclean. I've seen God. I know how far far short I fall. Believer, I am so convinced. God, we must humble ourselves before a holy God before He does His greatest transforming work in us. I'm convinced that our churches are sadly filled, and I've been there myself. With the people who, yes, they've prayed a prayer or they've walked an aisle or they've done such and such. But until they come to grips with how far short, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, until they really grasp that in the holiness of God, they really don't come to understand and appreciate the grace of God the forgiveness of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness. My prayer this morning is that we will get that vision. That we understand how far short we fall. Because look at verse 6 here. And you've got a picture again, Isaiah, with me. Here is a guy who is crying out judgment on himself that he is feeling guilty, and guilt is probably just oozing out of this prophet. But again, get this verse here. Now, you've got to look in here. This is where you've got to get the pencil out. All right? Then, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity or your guilt is taken away and your sin is forgiven. It's atoned for. It's, it's paid for. I want you to feel this. The transcendent God. He's just seen Him in His holiness. 
And then one of his messes or his, his one of, a mediator comes and he reaches out and he, he touches Isaiah at the point of his uncleanness. And he cleanses him. He forgives him. That's grace, folks. That's holy grace. That's holy mercy. That's holy forgiveness. Do you feel it? Can you imagine the relief and the shock that began to come over Isaiah? And God just didn't brush this sin aside either. As Isaiah would later prophesy, there was one coming who would really make atonement that all this symbolized for. There was one coming, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would provide that atonement once and for all. Do you have an area where you're unclean? transcendent God through His Son Jesus Christ, God Himself is reaching out now to you. Maybe you've never known Christ as your Savior. He's saying right now I want to come and I want to forgive you. And I want to cleanse you. But you need to admit you're a sinner and humbly come to Me. Or maybe you're a believer here today and you are oozing with guilt. Remember, maybe you don't even like to come to church because the guilt is just heightened. Because of some uncleanness in your life. Let me let you know something. Christ has already paid that price for you. It's already atoned for. And He says in His Word, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the transcendent God wants to reach down wherever in your life right now is unclean. And He wants to cleanse you and forgive you of that. If you'll humble yourself. Because He wants to cleanse us because He wants to use us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Look what verse 8 says. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. You you thought it was incredible that a transcendent God would reach out, provide grace for this man who was unclean. But He doesn't stop there. He said, I want to cleanse you and I want to use you. And Isaiah, who had seen this this great God, then seen His great grace, said, Here am I. I'm your man. Use me. Because I know you are my God. I know right where you're sitting. I know what you've done. Send me. The revelation of God and received with humility leads to transformation in your life. 
a transformation that leads to a devotion to God. And right now, God is calling many of you to serve. He wants to send you. And it's not always going to be an easy task to serve Him. Guess what? Isaiah's task was not going to be easy. If you read the rest of the verses, you'll see that these people would not respond to his prophecy. All that would be left to respond was a small remnant. But he said, here am I, send me. And right now, God is calling some of you men to be the spiritual leaders in your homes. And you're not. Because you haven't yet gotten a fuller grasp of the God whom is, is holy. And He wants you to respond to that. Be transformed. Some of you are calling and minister in your neighborhoods or in your workplaces. You need to respond to the Holy God. Some of you may be even called to, to serve around the world. I don't know. The Holy God is calling you. He wanted to send you. Humbly let God's revelation lead us to transformation. You know, we may not have a vision such as Isaiah had. It's not the norm. Guess what? It wasn't even the norm in the Bible. Very few others had a, a vision of God like this. But God still shares His revelation with us, doesn't He? Right here. And if you will humble yourself before the revelation that is given by God, He'll transform you. God's still in the business of transforming lives. One of my greatest privileges in ministry is I get to work with people. And I get to hear stories of transformation. I was reminded of one this, this week. That I had lunch with somebody. And they told me of how God worked in their life, how God humbled them, and how God moved them in, in a way as they've never had before to dig into God's Word and to read His Word and to memorize it. And it changed him. So much so that his wife would later say, you're not the man I first married. It's powerful, isn't it? It's because we have a holy God that when we encounter Him humbly, He will change us and He will transform us. That's our God. Let's pray. Dear God, I just pray as Your Word goes forth, as it went forth, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit will work in mighty ways to change and transform lives. Lord, I know I'm a man who is still very much unclean in many ways. But Lord, I also know that the fact, the position that Christ has already paid for those sins. But Lord, I ask you continually help me to be humbled when I come face to face with the revelation of yourself. And as I'm humbled by you, Lord, may you continue to transform and change me more and more into the likeness of Christ.
Lord, my prayer today is for those that are here. I pray for those who perhaps don't know You as their Savior. I pray, Lord, that through the revelation of Your Word today, they will see, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Lord, may they not stop there, but they also might realize that for by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is, You've provided grace, the gracious gift that Jesus Christ would die in our place for our sins. Not only did He die, but He's buried and rose again. That's a free gift. It's a free gift that makes atonement for our sins. And if we but receive that by faith, God pours His cleansing grace out on us. His holy grace. And Lord, I pray that if someone puts their faith and trust in Christ, may they not stop there, but they might also realize that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good deeds which He has ordained beforehand. That we allow the, the reality of who God is and His work of grace to humbly transform us, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that know You, have confessed You as Lord and Savior already in their life. And I pray that they may not walk out of here today the same. That, that these verses will so stick in them that maybe they'll go home this afternoon and they'll meditate over Your Word. And they'll ask, Lord, where, where am I unclean? And they might confess those sins. And then when they, they confess, as they're humbly, humbling themselves, Lord, may they turn away from those sins and fall after You wherever You will lead them. Lord, I just pray that we as a people, that as we look at Your revelation, may we humbly be transformed for Your glory and for Your honor. Lord, we praise You and we thank You. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said,